Chris Sweeney here, host of Homo Sapiens, the podcast that talks about life from a queer perspective. This is an ad in association with the Platinum Card from American Express. The Platinum Card offers incredible benefits across travel, hotels and lifestyle. They are running a limited time offer for new card members who sign up before the 25th of October 2022, where if you spend £6,000 in the first six months of card membership, you'll receive 60,000 membership reward points, plus £200 to spend on your next getaway with Amex Travel Online. Feels like platinum to me. I love these bits. Representative 437.9% APR variable. New card member offer ends 25th of October 2022. Annual fee. Insurance enrollment required. Hotel room upgrades subject to availability. 18 plus and subject to approval. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Mike Morford. Some of you may know me as co-host of the podcast Criminology. I'd like to tell you about a solo podcast that I host, which is very close to my heart. It's called The Murder of My Family. We've all heard about horrible murder cases in the news, both solved and unsolved. Most of the time, we listen for a moment and then go about our daily routine. But have you ever wondered who those murder victims were? Or thought about their backgrounds? They're more than a blurb in the news or a statistic. They were real people living real lives. They were someone's child, parent, sibling, or friend. In The Murder of My Family, I try to get to know those victims with the help of the people that knew them best, their family members. Together, we talk about the lives and tragic deaths of their loved ones, as well as the ripple effect the murders had on surviving friends and family. Some of the episodes feature high-profile cases you're probably familiar with, like the Colonial Parkway murders, the Delphi murders, or the Golden State Killer murders. But many other cases are ones from small towns all over America that barely made the news. There are dozens of episodes of the Murder My Family available right now to binge on. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In August of 2008, Giovanni was spending weekend visitation at his father's apartment. His mother kissed her five-year-old son goodbye, not knowing she would never see him again. Initially, Giovanni's father would deny ever seeing his son that weekend, but then he would confess to a crime that would shock an entire community. This is Giovanni's story. Giovanni Ernesto Gonzalez was born May 1st, 2003, to parents Daisy Colon and Ernesto Gonzalez Jr. Unfortunately, Gonzalez had a history of substance abuse and violent behaviour. He was arrested three times before Giovanni was born. The last time he chased his then girlfriend with a knife in 2001, before punching her and damaging her car. Related to this incident, would also see Gonzalez threaten both a neighbour and a police officer with a knife. For this, he would be charged with multiple assault charges and would serve three months in jail. However, this was never the case when it came to Giovanni. With Giovanni, Gonzalez was nothing but a loving and doting father, never even raising his voice in his son's presence. He was a very active father in not only Giovanni's life, but to all his children from past relationships. But because of the physical abuse and the obviously very toxic relationships, the Department of Children and Families received two reports of neglect within Giovanni's first year of life, one against each parent. These reports have never been substantiated further, 
and are not seen as pertinent as to what is to come. Daisy and Gonzalez separated when Giovanni was two years old. The final straw for Daisy was after Gonzalez swung a chair at her in front of Giovanni. Thankfully, the chair did not hit its mark and instead hit a cabinet behind her. But Daisy would take Giovanni and leave Gonzalez for good. Gonzalez would immediately petition the court for visitation rights, but because of the history of abuse between Daisy and Gonzalez, as well as additional allegations of abuse between the couple, and then the disagreement about parenting styles, Gonzalez would not see Giovanni for some time. Daisy and Gonzalez went into counselling so they could maintain consistent parenting techniques, and this seemed to be going well. So well that the former couple developed a verbal agreement for scheduled visits in the summer of 2008, so Gonzalez could again repair the bond between him and Giovanni. And this verbal agreement was to remain in place until September 15, 2008, when they would be back in court to finalise their custody plans. From my research, these visits seemed to be going well too. Giovanni would return to his mother after weekends with his father, chatting happily about how he and his father went to the park, coloured and watched movies together. The co-parenting relationship seemed to be positive, with Daisy and Gonzalez working together for the benefit of their son. In August 2008, Giovanni was attending Samuel Adams School in East Boston, but he was only weeks away from starting kindergarten, which he was particularly excited for. He lived with his mother, 33-year-old Daisy, on Patty's Way in East Boston, Massachusetts. The two had a special connection and were the happiest when they were together. Friends would later describe Daisy as a caring and thoughtful mother, quote, she is a good parent, I'd swear on a stack of Bibles, unquote. After the couple's separation, 36-year-old Gonzalez was homeless for a while. But around six months before Giovanni disappeared, he had moved into the Brightwood Terrace Apartments at 2 Brightwood Way in Lynn. This was the first stable and secure housing Gonzalez had been able to obtain since Daisy and Gonzalez split. Family and co-workers at the meatpacking factory where Gonzalez was working at the time, they described him as hard-working, physically fit and strong-willed. But then on the flip side, that he was short-tempered, distant and prone to bizarre behaviours. He would burst into high-pitched laughter for no apparent reason. Co-workers would later state that they were afraid of him. His relatives would later state... They avoided visiting him because it made them uncomfortable being around him alone. Friday, August 15, 2008, 4pm. Daisy dropped Giovanni off at his father's home for the pre-organised weekend visitation. She gave Giovanni his Transformers backpack, packed with a change of clothes and some of his favourite toys. He gripped his mother's hand tightly, as he was still getting used to being separated from her. Giovanni kissed his mother and told her that he loved her, and she told him she would see him on Sunday. Giovanni then walked towards his father's apartment with Gonzalez, 
before turning around and waving happily back to Daisy. Daisy last seeing her son dressed in a red t-shirt, blue jeans and his favourite black sandals with a Spider-Man logo printed on them. Now, Daisy did try and call Gonzalez a few times over the weekend, but the phone always rung out. This was not unusual, so Daisy did not feel this was off at the time. She had no reason to worry or panic. So when she arrived on Sunday, August 17th to pick up Giovanni, she was just feeling excited to be reunited with her son. But when she knocked on the door, there was no answer and there was still no response from Gonzalez on his phone. Worried, Daisy called the police for a welfare check. When police arrived, they used force to gain entry into the apartment. This was mainly due to Gonzalez's violent history and the concern he may have harmed himself as well as Giovanni. When police gained entry into the apartment, they were met with Gonzalez. He was sitting calmly in a chair. It was almost as if he was expecting them. But Giovanni was nowhere to be found. His toys that Daisy so lovingly packed only days earlier were there, but not his backpack or any clothing. Gonzalez was questioned on his son's whereabouts, but he denied even seeing Giovanni. He claimed the last time Daisy allowed him access to the child was August 10th, one week prior. However, eyewitness reports would state otherwise. Giovanni was seen on the morning of Saturday, August 16th, the day after Daisy dropped him off. He was out the front of the apartment with Gonzalez kicking a ball around. He then accompanied Gonzalez to his appointment at the Lynn Behavioural Clinic on Union Street between 11 and 12.30pm. Now, we don't know why he had this appointment. Due to doctor-patient confidentiality, all that the Lynn Community Health Centre would or could say was that Gonzalez was seeing a therapist, and they saw, quote, a lot of people with major and minor mental health problems, unquote. And then on the Sunday morning, only hours before Daisy discovered her son missing, neighbours would report hearing a child's cheerful playing from Gonzalez's apartment. There would be no evidence of Giovanni being with Gonzalez after this time. 2008. Lynn police would arrest Gonzalez and charge him with child endangerment in his son's disappearance. He did not resist arrest and went willingly with police officers. But like the day the police broke into his apartment, Gonzalez refused to cooperate with authorities. At the time of his arrest, he had a cut on his left finger but would not say how he got it. He would be held on a $500,000 bond. Now that police had Gonzalez behind bars, they had a reason to gain a warrant to forensically search Gonzalez's apartment. In applying for the warrant, Trooper Michael Murphy wrote, quote, 
I know that it's not unusual for individuals involved in homicides, child abuse and child endangerment related cases to memorialise their victims' abuse and or deaths through audio and or video media for later viewing, for guilt relief or for enjoyment as trophies, unquote. So police did believe early on that Gonzalez may have harmed his son. During this search, police seized several items, including knives, a Dell computer, a Nokia cell phone, toys, two pairs of jeans, a belt, a child's bicycle and helmet, lighter fluid, trash bags, a blood-stained bottle of pine cleaner, and a blood-stained mop that had been cleaned with bleach. They also took swabs from the kitchen and bathroom sinks. Initial testing would show the blood on the pine cleaner and the mop did not belong to Giovanni, but instead Gonzalez. This would not be the last of the forensic evidence to be revealed from these items, but this would come later in the investigation, so we will discuss this a bit later on in the episode. Given Gonzalez wasn't talking and the lack of evidence as to where Giovanni was, the police were limited of where to look and what to do. Given Gonzalez did not have a motor vehicle or close friends or a partner, he did not have the financial or social means and resources to take Giovanni far and have him hidden away. Based on this, the immediate area surrounding Gonzalez's apartment was searched thoroughly numerous times. State police and Lynn police tramped up steep slopes and probed under bushes with long poles, going through poles of trash and junk snagged under the underbrush. Wooded areas on the Boston Street side of Pine Grove Cemetery were searched with the assistance of canine cadaver dogs, although police were very public that they believed at this stage it was still a search and rescue mission rather than a recovery mission but they wanted to rule out all possible locations where Giovanni could be. The only tip they received was a putrid death smell coming from Flax Pond three days after Giovanni went missing, but this turned out to be a dead animal. Giovanni's mother Daisy had a disability which caused her chronic back pain and forced her to walk with a cane. She made daily trips from East Boston to Lynn to be a constant presence at these searches and for the media. But after a week, and I would say that the stress and anxiety and grief would have contributed to this, but after a week, Daisy would have to stop the trips because the pain became all too much and she was bedridden for a time. Ten days after the search began, the physical search was scaled back with an informational roadblock being set up in the neighbourhood to stop motorists for questioning to try and gather some new tips. Police Lieutenant William Sharp stating at the time, quote, The primary search is over. They're going through the case again and making sure nothing was overlooked and trying to be as thorough as possible. As time passes, we become more concerned, unquote. There would be a refocus from physical searches to reviewing the evidence authorities gathered in the initial investigation. It would be around this time that the FBI became involved to put a profile together on Gonzalez and to construct what may have happened that day.
November 2008, the Boston Globe newspaper interviewed Gonzalez about Giovanni's disappearance and the charges against him. Reporters would be shocked with what he revealed. Gonzalez said that during the weekend visit, Giovanni had been misbehaving. He was spitting and throwing bottles. He ripped a bedsheet and he jabbed Gonzalez in the back with a pen. So on the Sunday, the day Giovanni was supposed to return to his mother, the child started yelling again. So Gonzalez picked up a kitchen knife and stabbed his son. Quote, it happened so fast. I was upset. It happened in the moment. Unquote. Gonzalez would show remorse that he loved his son and regretted killing him. After the murder, Gonzalez would state he dismembered his son's body in the bathtub of the apartment, placing the body parts in shop-type grocery bags. He then placed these bags in a duffel bag and got onto his bicycle and rode to three different locations. He disposed of his son in trash bins behind a church and two stores in Lynn. Gonzalez insisted the murder was not planned and he did not know why it happened and he regretted it. Despite this, authorities questioned this version of events immediately. Initially, there was nothing that made sense that this ever happened. Initially, police only found blood on the bottle of pine cleaner and on the mop, and this blood was proven not to be a match for Giovanni. If what Gonzalez said to be true, then there would have been blood literally everywhere especially in the bathtub where Gonzalez claimed to have dismembered his son's remains. And we all know from listening to true crime podcasts and watching true crime documentaries, if someone's blood gets onto a surface and then it's cleaned up afterwards, you can still find it. The only way you are not going to find it is if the surface is removed. And in this case, that would have required Gonzalez to remove the entire kitchen floor and the bathtub. Daisy was distraught when she heard her former partner's claims, quote, It's like, why would you deny having your son, then after all this time, why would you come out and say something like this? He wants the attention. He wants people to stop looking for Giovanni, and that's not going to happen, unquote. Daisy and the police instead believed, and they still believe to this day, that Giovanni is still alive. That Gonzalez arranged for Giovanni to be taken to Puerto Rico. Now both Daisy and Gonzalez have ties to Puerto Rico. They were both born there, and they still have family in the area. Daisy would allege that after one visit with his father shortly before his disappearance, Giovanni came home, quote-unquote, pretending to be someone else. She believed this was proof Gonzalez was getting Giovanni used to being called and using another name. She alleged that when she was packing Giovanni's backpack to go to his father's the weekend he disappeared, that Giovanni wanted to pack more clothes than she would normally. Daisy believes this is her punishment for leaving Gonzalez, that he would want her to suffer for ending their relationship. Daisy would front the media soon after her son's disappearance, asking Giovanni to get to a phone any way he could and to call 911. She also pled to his abductors to return her son safely to her. Quote, Whoever has him 
just to leave him at the police station or leave him somewhere where he can say his name. I don't even need to know who it is. I just want my son back. Unquote. Investigators have looked into this theory multiple times over the years since Giovanni went missing. They've extensively interviewed Gonzalez's family in Puerto Rico, but there is no evidence he is on the island, and there has not been any solid sightings of him there either. The FBI also revealed all the Transportation Safety Authority tape from Logan, as well as from Puerto Rico. Nothing indicated that Giovanni left Boston or arrived in Puerto Rico at any time. They would also search throughout Massachusetts and Florida, but no trace of Giovanni could be found. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children got involved and they put out thousands of posters. Giovanni's story was also featured on America's Most Wanted. Unfortunately, this would not result in any significant tips or leads. December 2008, two weeks after Gonzalez's confession. The child endangerment charge against Gonzalez was dropped. Instead, his charge would now be parental kidnapping and misleading police. This was not based on what he told the Boston Globe, but on his initial insistence he had not seen Giovanni at all on the weekend he disappeared. But then the parental kidnapping charge would be dismissed in June of 2011 before again being reinstated a year later. June 2009. It was revealed in pre-trial discussion that during the five searches of Gonzalez's apartment, authorities discovered blood on a knife and on a floorboard. The blood was identified by a state crime lab, as well as a private lab, Cellmark Diagnostics of Dallas, as belonging to five-year-old Giovanni. Gonzalez's defence lawyer, Lawrence Maguire, asked the judge to suppress this evidence, as well as other evidence seized by authorities. He claimed police violated Gonzalez's rights by not having probable cause to conduct the searches. His lawyers also asked the judge to dismiss the kidnapping charge. They argued that without a formal custody order, then Gonzalez was presumed to have the same rights to Giovanni as Daisy had. And without a formal order in place, grand jurors did not have any legal basis to indict Gonzalez on that charge. The Superior Court judge ruled against Maguire's requests, and then later Gonzalez's new lawyer, Christopher Skinner, when Maguire retired but he ruled against their attempt to prevent evidence from being introduced at his trial. Daisy was present for all court proceedings. She offered $7,000 reward raised by her own hard work to bring attention to her son's disappearance. She was desperate for any information leading to her son. Daisy discounted the blood being found meant Giovanni was no longer alive and it seemed the police would agree with Daisy's assessment of the situation. Daisy believed this because Giovanni was a typical, energetic five-year-old boy. He often bled from cutting himself while playing or riding his bicycle. The week before he disappeared, he suffered quite a significant nosebleed after falling from his bike. Daisy believed this would better explain the amount of blood found in Gonzalez's home, 
rather than something sinister happening. May 2010. Daisy worried that people were going to forget her son or that they were going to believe him to be dead because of the blood evidence being found in Gonzalez's apartment. With phone tips running dry, she started a new high-tech campaign to focus people's attention back on the search for Giovanni. October 2011, Middleton Jail. Gonzalez would have another charge to add to his collection. October 30th, 2011, Gonzalez's cellmate, 56-year-old Orlando Diaz, was brushing his teeth when he bent forward to take a sip of water. This is when Gonzalez took the opportunity to strike Diaz in the back of the head, sending him face first into the metal sink. Correctional officers found Diaz bleeding profusely from his eyes and his face covered in blood. Gonzalez was found standing silently in a quote-unquote aggressive stance and breathing heavily at the back of the cell. Diaz sustained several broken bones in his face, as well as a serious eye injury that required surgery to repair. Because of this, Gonzalez was charged with aggravated assault and battery. The thing is, Diaz predicted this was going to happen. The two had only been assigned the same cell two weeks before the assault. Diaz complained numerous times of Gonzalez's bizarre behaviours, talking to himself and threatening violence to seemingly no one. Diaz told the correctional officers he thought Gonzalez would kill him. After this incident, Gonzalez was civilly committed to Bridgewater State Hospital for evaluation. Gonzalez's criminal trial was delayed multiple times. Apparently, his mental health had declined to a point where it was suspected he was no longer competent to stand trial. Multiple psychiatric evaluations would follow, and it seemed that no one could agree how much Gonzalez really understood. Gonzalez would be finally declared incompetent to stand trial in October of 2013. A court-arranged psychiatrist determined he was suffering from an undisclosed mental illness. But despite this, Gonzalez refused to take any medication or accept treatment. This may be strategic, because he does not want to face a long sentence in prison, and the medical incompetence means this delays this longer. And instead, he is held in the forensic section of Bridgewater State Hospital. Whether this is a better situation than prison, it's debatable. But that's where Gonzalez will remain until he is pronounced competent again. If convicted, Gonzalez faces up to 10 years in federal prison for the misleading charge, and up to one year for the kidnapping charge. Daisy and police still believe Giovanni is alive and living with Gonzalez's family, most likely in Puerto Rico. Daisy still sleeps with Giovanni's pillow, the only remaining way she can keep him close, just hoping that one day he will come home. Quote, I think about him. Is he scared? Is he eating? Is he asking questions like always? Is he being taken care of? Is someone with him? Is he asking for mummy? I feel he is close. But at the same time, where is he? Is he playing? Is he happy? Is he crying? All those questions are haunting me right now. 
and the not knowing is killing me, unquote. At the time of his disappearance, Giovanni Gonzalez was five years old. He is Hispanic of Puerto Rico descent. He was four foot one and 40 pounds with brown hair and these gorgeous, massive dark brown eyes. Giovanni was last seen wearing a red t-shirt, blue jeans and black sandals with the Spider-Man logo. If Giovanni is still alive today, he would be 18 years old. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Giovanni Gonzalez, please contact the Lynn Police Department on 781 591 2000. If you have your own thoughts on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook. Like the page so you don't miss any episode, and join the discussion group to share your ideas and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, and on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, Please share on your social media of choice and rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. This week's episode was researched, written, hosted and produced by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Chris Sweeney here, host of Homo Sapiens, the podcast that talks about life from a queer perspective. This is an ad in association with the Platinum Card from American Express. The Platinum Card offers incredible benefits across travel, hotels and lifestyle. They are running a limited time offer for new card members who sign up before the 25th of October 2022, where if you spend £6,000 in the first six months of card membership, you'll receive 60,000 membership reward points, plus £200 to spend on your next getaway with Amex Travel Online. Feels like platinum to me. I love these bits. Representative 437.9% APR variable. New card member offer ends 25th of October 2022. Annual fee. Insurance enrollment required. Hotel room upgrades subject to availability. 18 plus and subject to approval. Terms and conditions apply.